this evening. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. We'll be reading there in a moment. A uh, very popular verse in the Bible. Uh, William Carey, who is known as or called the father of modern missions, served the Lord in India for many years. He gradually became very concerned about the attitude, though, of his son, whose name was Felix. The young man had promised to become a missionary, but he had gone back on his vows that he made to God when he was appointed as an ambassador to Burma by the Queen of England. Carey wrote to his friend asking for prayer for his son with these words, saying, Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. You see, like Felix, the worries of the world and seemingly important things in our lives can get in the way of our availability to the King of Kings and thus making us ineffective in life and in service to God, but rather we must make ourselves completely available to God's calling on our life. Because no matter the cost, that calling is the highest possible calling we could ever answer with our lives. So let's look at our text this evening, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, which reads, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Amen. This evening I want to preach a sermon I've entitled, Available. Let's pray. Father God, help us tonight. God, let your spirit speak, Lord, this evening, God, through my mouth. God, not by my words, my intellect, God, but by your spirit alone, God, that you would penetrate the hearts and minds of each person here, Lord, that you would deliver a specific and unique message in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, I want to speak about the issue of being unavailable to God, turning away from God's call, rather. And there's a very popular story in the New Testament, in the Gospels, of a man who was known as the rich young ruler. You see his story take place in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 through 22. And it says, uh, sorry, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he says, I'm a good dude. I've kept the commandments, I've been a good man, and I am going to, I would like to be one of your followers, is basically what he tells Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man, and you can only assume he wasn't simply looking at the man before him, but rather the heart within him, because Jesus had the tendency to do that. And so this man who has good appearance, good stature, probably even good intentions, Standing before God says, God, I desire to serve you. And Mark 10, verses 21 through 22, Jesus, it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, the rich young ruler was unable to do what Jesus says to do to become his follower. 
And it's interesting because at this time, Jesus has never asked anyone to sell everything they own to follow him. Now, some of them may have very well done that. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't 2023 where if you owned a house, you just, all right, you know what, I'm going to go follow Jesus for a while and put my house on Airbnb. I can manage it from a distance. I got a buddy who can take care of it. No, these men gave up their lives to follow Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler in his heart is unable to do this because, you see, as much as he wanted to follow Jesus, he could not give Jesus his heart because his possessions had his devotion. And this is what Jesus looked at. This is what Jesus saw in this man. He said, you must sell all your stuff. Why? Not because Jesus says you can't be rich and follow me. Not because Jesus says you can't have a lot of stuff and follow me. It's because that stuff can't have you. Jesus wants to have you. He wants to have your heart. And what's interesting about the story of this man is that we don't even know his name. But what we do know is what, how the world defined him. Rich, young, and ruler. Sounds nice, right? It sounds like a good title. It sounds like, like a good thing to be called. And these things in themselves are not bad. But we don't even know this man's name, but we know what defined him. Now, here we are in this place, and maybe your title in this world is different. Maybe you're not rich. Maybe you're not young. I don't think we have any rulers here. That would be news to me. You might be broke, old unsuccessful. But the issue that Jesus wants to deal with is still the same. You see, Jesus' disciples were defined by just that, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. None of them had any additional titles except for when you would talk about who they were before Jesus. You know, we know Matthew was a tax collector. We know Peter was a fisherman. We know who these guys used to be. But once they dropped their nets, once they gave up those careers and decided to be a follower of Christ, they were known simply as disciples. You read some pretty powerful stories about Peter dropping his nets, the biggest catch of fish he had ever had in his career, and he left it all on the shore to go and follow Jesus, to become a disciple. These men leave their professions. They leave their families. Many of them left possessions, all of these things, to follow Jesus Christ, no longer identified by what the world knew them as, but now identified as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus. You see, the rich young ruler could not be defined by as a rich young ruler and a disciple. 
He could have been rich, he could have been young, he could have been a ruler, and been a disciple, but simply what Jesus is getting at with this man is he says, you must commit your life to one thing, me or your titles. And because of that, Jesus understands the issues of this man's heart, and he calls him to abandon all that is in this world that will steal your identity in Christ. And so the question isn't, are you rich? Are you young? Are you a ruler? Do you have authority? Do you, do you have all these things? You see, these are not the issues. As if you have lots of money, God bless you. If you're, if you're young and healthy, praise the Lord. If you have some type of authority, then good for you. You see, Jesus' issue wasn't that he was a rich young ruler. Jesus' issue isn't that he had these titles, but the issue that Jesus had, in fact, rather the issue that that man had, is that those titles had him. The question is, what defines you? Is it being a Christian? Is it being a follower of Christ? Or is it something else? And all of us here, we have titles. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm a co-worker. Many of us here share all of those titles or some of them. Of course, we have mothers and sisters and, and whatnot in this place as well. But the question isn't, what does the world call you? The question is, what does Jesus call you? When Christ identifies you, does he identify you as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of of Christ. You see, it isn't the issue that we have titles. In fact, those can come in handy in the kingdom of God. But do the titles have us? We can have many identifications in the world, but which one do we cling to the most? The rich young ruler was too wrapped up in his identity as the rich young ruler to make himself available to follow Christ. And the result of this is that all we know about this man is that he was a rich young ruler. We don't even know his name. We know him as the man who was rich. He was young and he was a ruler and he rejected Christ. You see, the cares and the desires of this world will all too often get in the way of our availability to God if we allow them. And there's lots of them, lots of cares, lots of desires, lots of things in life that are important, that require our attention, that require our effort, that require our time and care. But do they get in the way of who God has called us to be? You see a couple other instances of Jesus calling people to follow him. Matthew 8, 18 through 22 it says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And, the scri and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds have, of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the, of the disciples said to him, Lord, first... Let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Now the first man says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, but do you realize what that's going to cost you? I have no home. Many people know this. Jesus was pretty much homeless. He was a couch surfer. Now, he wasn't a bum. Of course, we know that. You read the New Testament. You read the Gospels. He was a busy man working, laboring for the kingdom. And I'm not sitting here telling any of you guys to go house to house like he did. He was traveling the world, healing the sick and saving people from their sins. When you start doing that, then you can probably start doing that as well. But the first man says, Jesus, I'll go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, do you realize what you're saying? You have to leave everything behind. The second man, this is an interesting one. People get confused on this one. He says, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This seems kind of harsh, right? It's like, dang, Jesus. like, Because we don't. The reality is because we don't understand what this phrase truly means. And it can cause some confusion because sometimes we read this and we think, man, this guy's died. Guy, dad just died and Jesus won't even let him go to the funeral? Like, dang. But that's not actually what that means. It seems that way to us. But in that culture, that phrase actually means, he's basically telling Jesus, listen, Jesus, my dad is kind of old. He might be healthy. He might be fine, but he's old. He says, I want to see out the last days of my father so that I can see him pass into eternity, and then I'll come follow. So this, this isn't like, oh, Jesus, the, the funeral's on Saturday. Can I catch up with you afterwards? It could be months, years, even a decade down the road. And so when he says, first and let me go and bury my father, he's actually saying, let me go see out the last days of my father's life. And so when you put some context to it, it makes a little bit more sense. It's not like, I'll catch up with you tomorrow. It's next, next year, next decade. Of course, if you know the ministry of Jesus, it was only three years long. Sometimes we wait too long and we miss out. But what's interesting to note about this text is that neither of these men are noted as becoming a follower of Jesus. I suspect that they left disheartened just like the rich young ruler did. We don't know their name. We just simply know the call that Jesus gave them. And so this isn't to say that we must abandon our homes and be homeless and to abandon our families and to leave and just drop everything. Although being a literal follower of Jesus in those days did require much of that. And in some ways we will have to make decisions and sacrifices to become Jesus' follower. But Jesus ultimately challenged these three men to become completely available to his calling, to his will, to the destiny that he had for these men. And they were simply unwilling. It's interesting to think, could there have been 13, 14, 15 disciples had these men responded differently to the call of Christ. But when we cannot make ourselves available to God, our life can only be looked at as what could have been. The rich young ruler, these two men that Jesus encountered, what could have been? 
Could they have been added to the 12, right? We know there's the 12 disciples, the, the ones who followed Jesus, who were the closest. Of course, we know Jesus had more than 12, but those were like his core 12, right? Could there have been more? What could have been of the rich young ruler had he, had he did, done what Jesus said and followed him? There's a story of a, of a judge in the Old Testament, many people know of him, named Samson. His story is documented in Judges chapters 13 through 16. And it's a story of a great man with great capabilities, but yet too wrapped up in his own concerns to be truly available to God. I don't have time to cover his entire story, but you look throughout his story and you see uh, him being a man who was oftentimes driven by his emotions, by his uh, by his lust, he married a Philistine woman, which, if you don't know, was the arch enemies of God's people in that time. And, of course, he's the man who, you know, had the long flowing hair and says that's where the source of his strength was. And he, he killed 2,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He cared, killed lions with his bare hands. This dude was for real. You think about a man like that. And his whole story is riddled with mistake after mistake after mistake. Most of them emotional blows, blow-ups. Because he could not take his own desires and set them aside for God's calling. Even to the point to where the end of his life, he falls in love with a prostitute, or what, love, air quotations, and, he, and this prostitute convinces him to tell him, tell her rather, the source of, her, of his strength, I'm mixing all kinds of pronouns up, and so she chops off his hair, and the Bible says that the Spirit of God left him, and he no longer had this supernatural strength, he gets captured by the Philistines. And they gouge his eyes out. And they put him in the, in the mill grinding grain as they mock him and make fun of him. And because he could not see God's plan for his life, because he could not see past his own desires, he finds himself a powerful man of God reduced down to a blind slave for his enemies. You see, we might not get our eyes gouged out, I hope. You don't. But we can find ourselves being a slave to our enemy. It might look different than Samson. And Samson, the end of his story, has some heroics, although it cost him his life. What could his story have been? That's the question. These men, the rich young ruler, these other two men, Samson himself, what could have been? Don't let that question be asked of your life. Because when we decide to make ourselves available to God, we have to come before Him as a humble servant, ready and willing to say, God, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, whatever you ask of me, I am willing because I don't want to wonder what could have been if I had given my life to humble service to God. 
Because we must have humility in service to God. You look at Samson, and he was a man who was, I mean, super strong, superhuman. He's almost like a superhero and full of pride. We must have humility in service to God. We must acknowledge that we, no matter how good we might be, no matter how rich, young, or authoritative we may be, are sinners and we are unfit to serve. And it is by the grace of God that we are made righteous and used for His will. Now, as we return to our text, Isaiah chapter 6, there's seven verses prior to that verse I'd like to share with you, verses 1 through 7. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two covered His face. And with two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, I being Isaiah the prophet, says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, Isaiah is known as one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And in this text, we see that he finds himself in the presence of God and his angels. And the first thing he realizes is just how sinful he is and how out of place he was. The first thing that comes to his mind is that, man, I am messed up and I do not belong in the presence of God and his angels. You see, sometimes we get a few things strung together. We start to make a couple good moves and we have some success and we start to think we're something. <laughs> at, least, at least once or twice. You know, every now and then we start to do a couple good things and we're like, oh yeah, we, you start walking with a strut, you know. Look what, look what I got going. And we feel like we're legit until God reveals himself to us just a little bit. And then we realize, man, we are tiny in the sight of God. You see, sometimes, on the flip side, we know we're messed up. We maybe made a few bad decisions. Maybe a few rough choices along the way. We're feeling down and out, bad about ourselves. But then God reveals himself to us in the power of his grace. See, Isaiah, he knew right away that he did not belong where he was. But what's interesting about what he does here is he didn't run. He didn't make excuses. It's what many people do when they're faced with their sin, with their own inadequacies, is they just run for the hills. Or they say, well, I didn't want to live this way. I didn't want to make that choice, but 
such and such circumstance made me do it. Isaiah didn't do any of that except just admit before God that he was a sinner. This is a crucial and important first step for him and for us. Because when we do this is when God's power can not only be seen by us, but experienced by us through the forgiveness that only God can give. See, no matter how much we do for God's kingdom, we are completely unworthy of Christ and his rewards. No matter how much work and labor we put in, whether it be for our local church right here or a mission somewhere across the world, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much labor we put in, no matter what we do, we will always be completely unworthy of Christ and his rewards. It is all, all by the grace of God. You look at John the Baptist. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verse 11, about John the Baptist. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) Anybody know anybody that wasn't born from a woman? Okay, so basically Jesus is saying everybody ever. (laughs) That's a funny way to say that, isn't it? (laughs) Of those born of women, maybe he's excluding himself by saying that. I mean, technically he was born of women, but you know, I don't know. I don't know why he said it that way. I find it kind of funny, but it's really irrelevant to the point. But that is quite the compliment. You think about, even in the Bible, some of the most amazing men in history. You look at Elijah, Ezekiel, Elisha, Noah, Moses, the man in our text, Isaiah, and all of these different characters, King David, throughout the Old Testament, who did some truly amazing, incredible things, were full of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus says, all of them, John the Baptist tops them all. <laughs> That's crazy. I wish we knew more about John the Baptist because we really don't know that much about him. But that's quite the compliment. Of course, John the Baptist didn't hear Jesus say this about him, and maybe that was a good thing. I don't know. But this is what John the Baptist has to say about himself. In John chapter 1, verse 23, you see people are coming to him and, and, and they're starting to realize, man, this guy's a big deal. Like he's, he, he literally lives in the desert and all these people come to him to hear the word of God preached by him. Out in the desert. It's like if you guys drove to my house for church, out, way out there, maybe farther, yeah, probably farther. And we had church outside because he didn't live in an apartment like I did. That's a dumb example. <laughs> so people are starting to realize, man, this John the Baptist guy, he's legit, man. The stuff he says, it makes sense. It clicks with me. I'm digging it. And they say, listen, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah reen- reincarnate? That's how, that's how highly people thought of that. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? They were ready to call him the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, John the Baptist understood that his life was a calling to prophet, was a fulfillment, rather, 
to prophecy, to prepare the way for Jesus. And, and even that, he understood that I am the one that Isaiah prophesied about. That's, even then he realized, man, I got a big role here. It's kind of a big deal, but he didn't let that get to him. If you continue reading from verse 23 down to 26 and 27, John the Baptist again tells the people, I baptized with water, but among you stands the one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So we're talking about the greatest man to ever walk the earth, born of a woman, according to Jesus, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is now talking about Jesus, who hasn't quite came onto the scene yet. And says, the man who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. <laughs> and you got to think, back then, we're not talking about like, you know, Birkenstocks walking down the paved roads. We're talking about a long time ago, dust and dirt, grime, sweat, nasty. You wouldn't want to untie somebody else's sandal. But he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. So church, here's a simple question. If John the Baptist was so great, but he's not even worthy to untie his sandal, then what are we? What are any of us? See, John the Baptist, he understood the importance of the calling that God put on his life, and it was a big one. But yet he remained humble in his position, realizing that even at his best, he was unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. You see, when we get to a place where we begin to believe that we are fit for service, that we are doing good, that we are humming along and we're doing great, is when we begin to decline in effectiveness for the service of God. Because John the Baptist, I can't even untie the dude's sandals, guys. You've got to understand. But when we begin to think, man, I'm worthy of this calling. I'm worthy of what God put. John the Baptist, he had a, a, a ridiculous calling on his life. But you must understand that as John the Baptist's calling on his life was so crucial to his life, the calling that God has for your life is just as crucial for your life. You might not be talked about in the Bible because I'm pretty sure they're done writing it. You might not go down in the history books, but your name will go in the book of life. That you can answer the calling that God has for you and that is just as important as John the Baptist answering his calling. You might not be as important as John the Baptist to the world, but that's okay. But that you can make heaven your home, that you can see souls go to heaven because you answered God's call. Listen, we don't save nobody, but you better believe that if you don't preach the gospel to that person across the street, they're going to die and go to hell tomorrow. Our calling on our life is the most important calling in the history of the universe to us. It should be. But when we begin to believe that this calling, that we're worthy for this calling, it's not good. That is when we go from relying on God to our own abilities because we believe that we're good enough. 
But if you feel unusable, unworthy, incapable, that is when you are ready to be used by God. You simply just have to be available. Just like Isaiah, just like John the Baptist, we have to acknowledge our sin and humbly come into God's service. And to effectively serve God, we have to admit that it is only possible by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In other words, Paul is saying, you were messed up and you did nothing to deserve this. But Jesus loved you anyway. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love. Not God had mercy of you because you tried so hard. Good job. Not God had mercy for you because you really excelled in this one area and you proved you were better than everybody else. So you, no. It says you were dead and Jesus brought you back to life. By grace you have been saved. And it is by grace and grace alone that beyond our salvation we can be used by God. We just have to make ourselves available to him. Our text, Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. He made himself available. Isaiah hears the call of the Lord and he immediately exclaims, right here, I'll do it. You think about this. This is verse 8. We read verses 1 through 7 a little bit ago and we see Isaiah realizing how messed up he is, how much he doesn't belong in that situation, how sinful he is. And now one verse later he's saying, I'll do it. Use me, God. He just realized how messed up he is, and now he's volunteering to go for the Lord, and he gets commissioned by God as a prophet. Think about this. You know, you guys, you, you've probably heard me say this many times. When I read the Bible, I like to think about what it says. I also like to think about what it didn't say. Or in this case, what Isaiah didn't say. He didn't say, God, I can, but first let me finish my education. First, let me get out of my 20s. You know, live it up while you're young, right? First, let me get my money right. Let me get my life right. First, let me catch the Seahawks game. You know, I, really, I say that because we're in the Northwest, but there's probably not many Seahawks fans here, actually, which is a good sign of a solid church, I'll tell you. <laughs> God, I can, but first let me fill in the blank. The doctor says, you got cancer, and the doctor's like, you need to do chemo. And you're like, okay, but first let me get my cancer together. <laughs> what? Do you know how dumb that sounds? 
But that's how we sound when we stand before God and say, God, let me get my life together before you forgive me. Let me get my life together. No, Isaiah didn't say any of this. He didn't think any of this. He didn't think, what will my family think? He didn't think, what will my friends think? He didn't think, how is this going to affect my career? I'm pretty attached to it. He didn't think, how is this going to affect my hobbies? I love to go golfing on Saturday, but what if God calls me to prophesy on Saturday? Isaiah didn't do any of that. He heard the voice of God call, and he said, I will do it. He heard God's calling. He immediately forsook everything that could have been in the way, dreams, hobbies, relationships, whatever. And he responded with, here I am, send me. Because there is no higher calling than the calling from the King of Kings that he has on your life. Just like in, a, in the story I told at the beginning, Felix, man, he got called to be the ambassador for for whatever I said it was, I don't remember. That's a high calling to the world. But he forsook the calling that God had for his life, the King of Kings. Here I am, send me. I am available. But the question is for each and every one of us, is available for what? Isaiah 6, 8, it's one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and it's oftentimes uh, related to the calling to preach, the calling to be a minister or whatever. But the truth is, I don't think it's that simple. Of course, we know Isaiah it was a prophet, right? That's why the book is a book of prophecy. Prophecies that God sent through Isaiah, and this is him act, uh, uh, accepting God's call to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. But the truth is, Isaiah 6, 8 should resonate with every single believer. Because all God said was, hey, I need somebody. He didn't say, I need a prophet. They're going to write the longest book in the Bible. They're going to have all this amazing knowledge about prophecies that will come true thousands of years later. You're going to have all this power. People are going to remember you. It's going to be awesome. Who wants to do it? No, he said, I need somebody. He could have been talking about to clean the toilets. No higher calling. He could have been talking about somebody to lead outreaches on Saturday. There's no higher calling. He could have been talking about somebody to lead the children's church. There's no higher calling. Why? Because that's the calling that God put on your life. No, come on. That's right. Isaiah 6, 8 should resonate with every single person who calls himself a Christian. Why? Because God has a calling for every single person who calls himself a Christian. Isaiah had no idea what the calling was. I mean, he got, we, we, we like to look at it as like hero, like he got a pretty sweet gig, but you know, it really wasn't all that sweet. He got persecuted quite a bit. Most of the prophets did. Isaiah didn't know what the call was, but he understood that the value of being called by God to do anything was more valuable than anything the world could ever offer him. But the root of the situation is there is a need and he made himself available to God. D.L. Moody, a famous Bible scholar, wrote the following words in his Bible next to this verse, Isaiah 6, 8. He says, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do I ought to do. 
And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. There are many callings in the Christian walk. There are many callings in the church. Everywhere from from being a missionary to the nations to scrubbing the toilets, to taking care of the kids in their poopy diapers, to outreaching on Saturdays, to being launched across the country, and everything in between. There are many callings. We just simply have to say, God, here I am. I'm available for whatever you call me to do. Christians are all a part of the body of Christ. They all have a purpose. 1 Corinthians 12, 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We are the body of Christ because we are to act as one body with many functions to carry out the work of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we make ourselves completely and entirely available to whatever the role we are called to. It's like, what if a part of your body decides that it's unavailable one day? You get up out of your bed, your legs are like, not today, and you're like... You go to eat a slice of pizza and your arm's like, nope. That would suck, right? If, you're, if part of your body was just like, nah, taking the day off. Or I decided, you know what? I know I'm a foot and everything, but I'd rather be a hand. So don't walk on me. Just pick stuff up with me. <laughs> right? Your nose is like, today I'm a mouth. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God either. You see, Paul uses this description because there are parts of the body that are crucial. But they can't do nothing without the other parts. See, the misconception is that a life lived for Christ leaves you missing out on life. You don't get to do all the stuff you wanted to do. But true freedom is found by living in service to God. Jesus says in John eight thirty six, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from what? Free from the struggles of sin. free from the bondage of sin. You skip back a few verses, verses 34 and 36, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus is the one who sets us free from our sin. And then calls us to service by his grace. The yoke of sin is no longer weighing down on us. And we are freed by Christ to live for him righteously. You see, just like Isaiah, if we can set aside our sin. Set aside our worries. And make ourselves completely available to God and just simply say, here I am, use me. When we do that, then we can experience true freedom on earth. True purpose and destiny in our lives. 
by giving our lives to Christ and saying, God, use me. The calling you have for me, it's better than anything the world can offer. By submitting our life to him humbly, to be used by the grace of God and allowing him to heal us and work in our lives in ways that we never could have imagined. We just simply have to stand before God, humble, say, here I am, use me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening.